We're ready to go. Okay. Okay. Good evening, and uh, welcome to the special meeting of the Design Review Committee. Uh, Madam Clerk, could you please take roll? Yes. Uh, Member Cormain is absent. Member Kiesel. Member Groudon? Here. Uh, Vice Chair Tomasello is absent. And Chair Antelman? Here. Okay. Um, I hope not. <laughs> this is a doorknob. Uh, now's the time we set aside for public communication. Uh, Madam Clerk, does anyone that wishes to speak about anything that's not on the agenda tonight? It doesn't say an agenda item, but I do have one public speaker, but it's probably for agenda item number one. Okay. Who is it? Mark Pettit. Okay. Mark Pettit. You'd like to speak on the form-based code overlay? Okay. No, no public comment. Okay, then we're going to move forward to uh, formal item number one, housing element form-based code overlay. Uh, have any of the DRC members had any ex parte communication on this topic? Okay, then uh, can we have a presentation, please? Thank you, Chair Adelman, DRC members. Um, just a quick refresher before I turn it over to um, the consultants to do a presentation. Uh, we brought uh, our original discussions about the form-based code overlay back in August uh, for preliminary feedback. Since that time, we've developed a draft overlay that was posted for the public about two weeks ago, and we'll be receiving public comment um, up until April 9th regarding the draft that has been um, published for the public to comment on. Tonight we're going to go over a presentation of it and discuss the overlay um, and then next steps we will talk about at the end. So with me tonight is the consultant team that has been working with us on drafting the overlays. I'm joined this evening with Ramey and Associates. Sim I'll let them um, introduce themselves, but Simran and Alessandra, and I'll go ahead and turn it over to them. Thank you, Nada. I think you can hear me, right? Yeah. Uh, good evening, Chair uh, Antelman and members of the committee. Uh, I'm Simran Malhotra. I'm a principal with Ramey and Associates. Uh, and I, with Alessandra Lundin, who's an associate with our firm, are working on uh, the form-based overlay. Uh, what we have today for you is a brief overview of, and a reminder of why we are, uh, why the city undertook this project, um, what engagement and uh, feedback we have received so far, and then we'll walk through the major elements of the overlay zones as they are laid out. I'm going to wrap up. 
What was your scope of work? What was your tasking? Yes, our task was to write an overlay zone, which would, and I'll get into that uh, in the presentation, uh, in what and the overlay zones would apply to certain housing elements, uh, sites that have been identified to allow housing, uh, and those are a part of action of what the housing element, um, which the city council adopted, uh, requires the city to do. So next slide, and that was just the overview. Next again. So as I noted, we'll describe the overview, uh, review the engagement activities and the community input received so far, and review the overlay zones, um, organization, and highlights. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, next. Um, so the city adopted its six-cycle housing element um, late last year, and the housing element identified several housing sites, including parcels that will need to be rezoned to accommodate housing. Uh, I have a map on the following uh, slide which shows which sites those are. Um, and as a part of the housing element, uh, there was an objective laid out to uh, use form-based code as a, uh, as a standard overlay or a standard zoning district to allow for infill first strategy to apply to these lands. Um, next, please. So today, the city's standard zoning code does not have any design standards. Um, they are primarily the development standards that are in the current zoning code, as you well know. Um, so for uh, certain sites, these sites which are on the map here, um, the city is required to provide objective design standards so that they have some control over what actually gets built on those sites. Uh, if there are no design regulations in place, then there's um, it's essentially a free-for-all as with no, no requirements that the city can actually enforce. Um, so the sites that are identified, there's one site on Church uh, Telegraph Road. Uh, it's a church site, which is currently R1. Uh, this will require a general plan amendment and a rezone to allow 30 units to the acre. And then there are several sites along the Johnson Corridor um, which are currently zoned CPD, these, these sites will also need to be rezoned to allow residential and mixed uses. Uh, and the housing element assumes that the density on these sites is about 45 units to the acre or about four stories. Um, so these, this project will create several form-based code zoning overlay districts that will apply to these particular sites. And in the future, the city council may also choose to apply these overlays to other potential development sites in the city that do not have, uh, that do not have um, a form-based code in place. So generally speaking, these are sites which are not in a specific plan because the city today has so many specific plans which have form-based uh, codes that apply, but these are areas outside of the specific plan. Next. So um, <coughs> this project creates four form-based uh, overlays uh, that will be applied to the sites uh, that are being rezoned for the housing element. Um, 
as I noted earlier, these have limited development regulations and not uh, enough uh, design standards uh, to ensure that the buildings are uh, high quality and well designed. Um, so by adopting these new overlays, the City Council can institute objective standards as required by state law to achieve uh, the design goals. Um, this overlay will not replace any specific or corridor plans that are already in place. Next. So um, we've been working on this for the last um, six, eight months or so. We started last summer, um, did some initial data gathering and research, including uh, engagement. And then we had a workshop with you all in the end of August um, to get your feedback as well as community feedback um, that I'll describe uh, on a future slide. And then since then, we've been working with the city staff on developing a code framework and then uh, writing the overlay zones uh, that have been released for public review and you've had a chance to look at them. Once we get your comments, we'll make revisions um, and um, also but the public review period closes. We'll work with city staff to make the appropriate revisions and then it'll uh, go to the Planning Commission and City Council for uh, review and then adoption. Next. Next. So in terms of engagement, um, we held meetings with city staff, uh, had focus groups with design professionals and architects and developers to get their input on what works and what is lacking in the current regulations. Uh, we also received um, input from you all um, and the community at a meeting back in August. Um, as you may recall, we used live polling on a, preference, a visual preference survey to receive comments and direction at that meeting. Um, we had over 70 um, attendees at that, uh, at that meeting. The key takeaways, next slide please. Um, the key takeaways we received from, from all the input um, are summarized on this screen um, and they relate to um, several topics. Building design and architecture, how, how new construction transitions to the surrounding neighborhood, um, open space requirements on site, and how parking is uh, accommodated on the site. Um, in a little bit more detail, the major topics related to building design were massing, uh, you know, breaking up larger buildings so that they appear or read as separate buildings so they feel and look smaller than they actually are. Um, a lot of desire to see fine-grained architectural features and articulation, so porches, projections, trim <coughs> details, roof styles, etc. Um, given that sidewalks in some parts of Ventura are fairly narrow, the desire to have general setbacks with landscaping and trees to allow for a more gracious interface of new construction with the public realm. Um, and then there was some um, commentary on the use of traditional materials and st stylistic elements and um, also to uh, the use of a variety of colors. Uh, in terms of transition to neighborhood, uh, neighborhoods, um, we have additional setback standards and height transitions to lower density development. Um, that was a desire and it's been accommodated as you'll see in the, in the overlay zones. 
Um, the open space requirements um, are uh, fairly uh, as written, and this is uh, feedback we received from the design professionals. It's there, there was a desire for more flexibility into how, as to how those the open space requirements are accommodated <coughs> in a project. It's very prescriptive in several um, of the form-based codes today, and uh, one can achieve the same uh, impact, but with by providing more flexibility. So that was another um, topic that we addressed. Uh, similarly, for parking, there are very uh, prescriptive requirements today about where parking can be placed on a site, and um, some, some, some requirements are actually contradictory with others in the same form-based code, uh, so we try to uh, remove those uh, inconsistencies. And so with that, um, next slide, I think, Alessandra, I will let you Thanks, Simran. <laughs> Good evening. Um, I'm going to walk through some more of the details of the overlay zones. Oops, sorry. Um, so you'll see we have four overlay zones that we've created, and they range in density. So we have a low-moderate um, density residential, the LM, which allows densities of 14 to 20 dwelling units per acre. So this um, townhomes, duplexes, triplexes, and quadplexes, cottage clusters and similar um, housing types would fit into this overlay zone. Then we have a three-story residential and mixed use, the MU3, which is 20 to 30 dwelling units per acre. And this corresponds to townhomes and low-scale multifamily buildings, such as courtyard housing. We have a four-story residential and mixed use overlay at 30 to 54 dwelling units per acre and then a five to six story residential and mixed use overlay at 45 to 80 dwelling units per acre. And these last two would accommodate stacked multifamily dwellings and vertical mixed use buildings. Next slide. So we use several of the city's existing formates codes as a base for the new overlay zones and then made appropriate modifications. So you, you'll see that they're really set up and structured in the same way as the existing codes. So they start with the overlay zone development standards and then they moved on to standards that are by building type. Then there's a section on frontage type standards. And lastly, we have a section with general site design standards that are applicable to all of the overlay zones. Next slide. I also wanted to note um, there are a few differences between the new overlay zones and the existing form-based codes in the city, and Simran touched on a couple of these already. So um, one difference is that these overlay zones contain both development standards and clear and objective design standards per state law. So it's no longer um, subjective guidelines. All of the design standards are clear and objective. They also address some of the existing challenges that have come up with the current form-based codes in regards to parking and open space. Um, so these standards provide additional flexibility on where parking is placed on a site, as well as placement and design of private open space. And importantly, they address the concerns we heard from the community. So they provide greater setbacks for high-density building types, which will allow for wider sidewalks and additional landscaping and street trees. Um, along the building frontage. They also include standards to ensure appropriate transitions where higher density development is directly adjacent to lower density building types. Next slide. 
Oh, right, this is a dynamic slide. <laughs> um, so the overlay zones are organized such that the standards layer on top of each other. So if you were developing a project on one of the overlay sites, you would first find out your base zone in the city, which would give you your allowed uses for the site. Um, next. Um, then you would, oh, sorry, next, yeah, yes. Then you would look at which of the four overlay zones you're in, um, which would provide you with the allowed building types. Um, so you get allowed building types, lot width, density, um, setbacks, parking, and open space requirements. Next. Um, next, based on the building type selected, you would look at the building type standards, which provide design requirements for access and orientation, massing and articulation, colors and materials, window treatments, and the like. And then next, you would find the appropriate frontage standards for whichever building frontage type is selected. And then finally, you would design the site according to the general site design standards section. So you can kind of see how it all layers on top of each other. And I'm going to walk through some of more details of each of these sections on the coming slides. Next slide. So based on the overlay zone, certain building types are allowed. And the building types covered by these overlay zones range from single-family homes and row houses all the way up to multi-story stacked dwellings and vertical mixed-use buildings at the higher density, uh, for the higher density overlays. Next slide. Each overlay includes general site and building-specific development standards, including, um, of course, lot width, density, um, setbacks, parking, and open space. And then to go into more detail on how these development standards address the community concerns, we increase the setbacks to provide for wider sidewalks and additional privacy and landscaping along building frontages. Um, there's more flexibility in um, the placement of parking. So in the current four-base codes, um, parking was only allowed um, for the most part on the rear half of the site. Um, we've changed this so that it would be allowed to the rear and side of buildings as long as it doesn't take up more than about, you know, 30% of the street frontage. We provide required open space by building type, so both a total required um, open space as well as a minimum amount of private open space per unit. And we built in additional flexibility for open space layout and dimensions. So for example, most building types require a minimum of about, about 200 to 300 square feet of total required open space per unit, which would be um, combined um, common open space and private. Um, but then they'll also have a required uh, private open space per unit. And then again, with um, additional flexibility, we're allowing common open space to be accommodated via courtyards, but also roof decks and any other areas that meet kind of the minimum dimension and design requirements. And then lastly, we have also required bulk reductions um, for the top floor of the higher density building types. Next slide. Some of the key building type standards included in the overlay zones are um, orientation of primary entries towards the street or towards open spaces and courtyards. Um, we have standards that address uh, building modulation and articulation, but they also provide a lot of flexibility on how those standards are met. So in a lot of cases, there's a menu of options. 
um, for, so a, a menu of modulation options, a menu of articulation options that can be chosen from. Um, buildings must include variation in colors and materials. And then we have standards that require that windows are um, recessed or they include trim. And then while the overlay zones don't prescribe any particular style, we have included an architectural integrity guideline. So whichever architectural style is selected, buildings should be designed using elements that are authentic to that architectural style in regards to building form, detailing, um, decorative features, colors, and materials. Next slide. Um, as previously noted, and I, um, if you're familiar with the city's existing form-based codes, um, you've seen these. So the overlays include frontage standards by type, and the various residential and commercial frontages included are um, porch and yard, stoop and dooryard, which are really you know more residential frontage types. Um, there's four, four courts, galleries and arcades lobbies and shop rent and awning, which are mostly, those four are mostly uh, commercial frontage types. Next slide. So each frontage type um, includes diagrams and standards which address dimensions, elevation, and ground floor height. Um, they have required weather protection, whether that be via a porch, um, a recess, or an awning or canopy. Um, there are storefront transparency requirements for, um, you know, glazing and um, windows and doors. And then we also have landscaping of setbacks. Next slide. And then lastly, the overlay zones include site design standards that are general to all of the overlay zones. So this includes neighborhood transitions, as Simran mentioned. Um, we have setbacks and height step-downs towards lower density development. And then there are also some standards that address window and balcony placement for privacy. Um, we have a whole section on services and utilities, which includes um, design standards on the location and screening of equipment, um, building equipment, rooftop equipment, um, as well as trash enclosure design. Um, there's a section on access and circulation, which requires smaller uh, block sizes for new blocks, um, as well as connections to the external um, network of streets and pathways. Um, we have some parking standards, so parking access. This addresses um, curb cuts and driveways and consolidating them, um, as well as screening standards for both surface and um, structured parking lots. Next slide. And then lastly, we have um, some open space design standards. So in addition to the minimum required amount of open space, we have minimum dimensions for various types of open space, as well as required amenities, landscaping, and shading. We have some street tree standards, which address location, size, and spacing of street trees. And then we have some standards for lighting design, which includes height and shielding. And you'll see here, this is just an example on the bottom, um, this table provides the um, required open space standards for the MU3 overlay. So you can see it varies by building type, and then there's a certain amount of total required open space and private open space required for each building type. And that concludes our presentation for this evening. Do any of the DRC members have any questions? The applicant? 
Uh, does staff have any further presentations or discussions? We do not. We are available for questions and then public comment and then any discussion that the DRC has on this. Okay, then why don't we proceed with public comment. Uh, Madam Clerk, is there anyone that wishes to speak? And uh, how many speakers do we have tonight? Two. Uh, three. 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 And generally, we limit this to five minutes per person. I think we could go a little longer with just three people. So your protocols do call for three-minute public comment. Okay. Can we go to five since there's only three people? I heard last time the DRC would like to stick to your protocols, and so I would advise if you do want to stick to your protocols to, to stick to three. If you do want to extend, that is up to you, Chair. Um, let me poll the members. Would you be fine with a five minute? Five minutes be fine with you for three people? I'm okay. Okay, I, I think with just three people here. It, it, we have four now. Four? We still have a bit. Okay. All right, as long as we don't go over four. <laughs> Okay, our first public comment is Mike, Mark Pettit. Pettit. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Mark Pettit. I'm with Lauterbach and Associates Architects. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to uh, speak in front of you. Um, I just wanted to... Uh, maybe a little bit of insight. I look at this as an opportunity to um, have more housing and potentially more affordable housing in the city as uh, we get more and more into uh, needing to require or the state requiring housing with limited space. So that's kind of the, the overall way that I looked at this. Um, I like to be able to see uh, the city put in certain standards concerning um, ADUs, and in particular, um, what some municipalities have done is they've eliminated the height requirement. So ADUs can be put on upper floors of, let's just say, apartment buildings. Uh, as you're aware, we can have 25% of the total number of units in an apartment building in ADUs. and um, uh, by doing what some other municipalities have and don't have a height requirements, they could be put on the third or the fourth floor or, or higher. Um, I'd also like to see that, and once again, state law allows <clears throat> the ADUs being allowed to be um, applied for at the time of initial application, and I didn't see anything about that. I thought that would be an important thing to have, once again, in keeping with the goal of providing more housing and more affordable housing. Uh, the other thing uh, about California State Density Bonus, I didn't really see anything in about this. And underneath California State Density Bonus, as you're probably aware, depending on the affordability and the level of affordability, there's a certain amount of concessions, an unlimited number of waivers, and incentives, including parking incentives. So. Um, some of those might need to kind of come in because since the city does have an inclusionary housing ordinance now, all the developer has to ask and provide, and they can get, for example, if they provide 20% affordable, they can get three concessions and unlimited number of waivers, and a lot of the things in through here don't matter. 
Um, if it's affordable housing, it can have up to four concessions and an unlimited number of waivers. Um, the other thing that is important, I'd like to, uh, one of the things that stops housing is parking, the a number of parking spaces. And I'd like to see um, having one per one, maybe in some of the downtown areas, maybe that makes more sense. Um, and one of the other things that I saw in the presentation, um, some of the examples, for example, don't even show patios, private open space. So it's a little, if I'm looking at that, trying to find that criteria, the examples don't match. So that might be a little bit interesting if somebody says, hey, we followed the guidelines, we followed the building that you have here, and there's no patios, but yet the requirement. Um, as far as the open space, that's another one that also um, is tough to do. And I would consider what some cities, municipalities do is that they have a square footage that could be placed in private or in common or in interior space. Virtually all the projects that we're doing have fitness centers and lounges and all sorts of things that really take up thousands of square feet because you've got to have that in order to market your project, whether it's affordable or market rate. So I'd like to see some flexibility in that so that it's not just so much in private and so much in public, but that you, know, you, you um, take advantage of it and take advantage of our views here in Ventura. So uh, roof amenities are great. And um, anyway, I think that if we can work somehow with that to be flexible, because if, if it isn't, that'll just be number one thing that a concession or a waiver will be, is to modify that. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to talk about are the densities and the heights. A scenario that I recently had on a project, it's a little over an acre, was a higher density. The developer came in 100% affordable, got an 80% density bonus. There's a maximum height, but underneath the, <clears throat> the density bonus, they could go up additional stories. They went up additional stories. Thank you. Time's up. Could do. Um, so maybe take a look at that a little bit. And uh, excuse me. Time's up. Great. Thank you. Anyway, thank you. Next, we have Paul Sheenhan, and then Amy Sherry is after that. Good evening, I'm Paul Sheehan with Dyer Sheehan Group in Ventura. And uh, we've been following and participating in this process for a couple of years. And our firm represents multiple landowners who will be directly affected by these overlays, uh, including the owners of 6205 Ventura Boulevard, which is the property that was shown up there in the slides is directly adjacent to the Metrolink Center. The city's original motivation for creating the overlay zones came out of the housing element update, and staff dealt with this a bit, and the need to allow housing development on certain properties that were on the site's inventory list but weren't currently zoned for housing. 
It was repeatedly stated during the housing element process that staff's intention was for the city to adopt housing overlay zones which could be applied to these specific properties and therefore allowing housing, independent of the uses normally allowed under the existing zoning. At the DRC special meeting last August, City staff, led by then-Community Development Director Peter Gilley, gave a detailed presentation regarding the status of the overlay zones. And Peter emphasized that the staff had decided to create the overlays as form-based codes. He says it was not a requirement, it was a choice by staff. And as part of one discussion that evening, he emphasized that the assignment of these overlays would, in effect, be a zone change action subject to the city council approval. It was also explained that while the assignment of the overlays was mandatory for certain properties in the site's inventory list, the city had the option of applying them to other sites within the city. Despite all this, here we are today where the last section in each one of these four overlay zones states that only a land use identified as permitted or conditional in the base zone per the Ventura Zoning Code shall be established on a lot in the overlay zone. This is in direct opposition to everything we heard up through the last meeting with the DRC where the overlay zones were to create the mechanism to allow housing. Maybe I'm missing something, but I don't understand how we went from that to where the overlay zones uh, are not applicable or have no effect unless there has been a separate zone change action that allows housing on these properties. I'd love to get some clarification as to why this basic approach changed and what is gained by it. For a long time, the city has talked about streamlining the development review and approval process, and this new approach seems to take us in the opposite direction. I strongly suggest we go back to the original intent where the overlay itself allows the housing and we do not need a separate independent zone change action on a property that qualifies for the overlay zone. Thank you. Amy Sheree, and after that we have Mark Abe. Hi everyone. Thank you for letting me speak. Um, we had sent some stuff in and made it red, but I have some ideas. I just want to make sure everyone hears. Um, attics, if you're going to allow 75% living space in an attic, it should be counted as a floor. Um, it's taxable if it's living space. I think you'll see a lot of developers doing 10-story attics, and then once they get their certificate of occupancy, they'll finish it out, and it'll be living space. That's not taxed. Plus, it's a height thing. Come on. 75% attic space can be livable. Uh, split up residential for mixed use. We've been asking this all along. Can't have... Thompson turn into all residential. It's going to be mixed use, so there should be a, a requirement of 40, 50% ground floor frontage, um, be commercial or retail. We're going to lose a lot of jobs. 
Um, doesn't seem like it would be too hard to have a commercial block or have row house, whatever. Um, stacked use dwelling should only be above commercial space, not from the ground all the way up. Um, do not allow um, any of the overlays on existing Form Bates Coast or overlay zones, hillside overlay, historic district overlay, uh, coastal bluff overlay. Um, they all have very specific items. Don't need to mess it up with all of these. Um, let's see, like as an example, um, high density on here are the five and six stories would be 80 acres or 80 units an acre. Um, in the negotiations with the, the lemon plant, KB Helms people, if they go to high density, it's 80 units an acre. You got to think about like, where is this going to be used? I know it's supposedly it's only specific areas, but you know, you can't just think those sites because if it's the goal to use throughout the city, you got to think about where they might be putting them. And let's see, do you do roof decks, um, depending on how much is up there, like if you have outdoor living spaces and fireplaces and, um, you know, I'm sure people are going to start putting pools on the roof deck. It absolutely should be counted as floor. Um, one of the main things that people complain about is for height and whatnot is um, it blocks people's view. Or they don't want people looking down in their, their backyard all night while people are partying. So uh, if it's going to have any, any hardscape on the roof, it should absolutely be counted as a floor. I think that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Mark Abe. Good evening, DRC and staff. My name is Mark Abbey. I'm just going to make general brief comments. I'm not going to get in detailed into my comments. Uh, two items I'm going to talk about are neighborhood transitions and uh, going from four-story to five-story to six-story. Um, I'm not going to be d detailed and specific, but on slide number 22 under general site design standards, it mentions neighborhood transitions, setbacks and height step-downs or step backs towards lower density development. Um, I know that uh, Victoria Corridor below Moon Drive is, is already in the Victoria Corridor plan, so it doesn't uh, specifically address this, but uh, the Montalvo Community Council, which I chair, I'm not speaking on their behalf tonight. I'm speaking, giving my own opinions. But uh, it, it's under GPAC consideration. The residential we know is going to be replaced south of Moon Drive, but because of the residential direct beha directly behind those single-family residential lots, uh, they will have neighborhood transition issues. And uh, our community council has asked that those be three-story, 45 feet, at, uh, on Victoria and taper down to two stories in the rear with a, an alleyway, a 15, 20 foot feet alleyway behind it. Um, at a planning commission meeting not too long ago, within the past year, there was a project that came before the planning commission regarding uh, Tom Cruise. 
So Thompson Boulevard and Santa Cruz Avenue. And that was a project that the Planning Commission decided should be three-story at the front, tapering down to two-story with an alley behind it, and then single-family residential behind it. So that sensitivity is, is, is good. I don't know, I think I like the general idea of height transitions, but please take a very critical look at what's being proposed by staff and the consultant on, uh, especially as you get to the high, higher issues. I don't know if three foot and higher should only have 15 foot step back. You might wanna take a closer look at that. Finally, um, we have low moderate density residential, three story, four story, and then there's a big jump to five and six story. I'm just wondering, I mentioned this at Poinsettia Pavilion, why is there not a separate five-story and a separate six-story? Why are those two lumped together? Those are my comments tonight. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes public comment. Okay. Um, I'm assuming we're in the process now of discussing what's been presented among the members of the DRC. Uh, Chair Adaman, you can close the public hearing and deliberate. Okay. Public hearing is closed. Uh, before we deliberate, are there any questions of staff based on what we've heard? I would like to hear some responses to the questions, especially Paul Sheehan's uh, questions, uh, all, all, but all the present presentations of, of, or all the public comments, if you could respond to their comments or questions. That was a lot of public <laughs> questions and comments. I don't know if we can respond to well, all of them. Well, you can parse through it. You can, you can especially go through the initial intent of the overlay zones and what, what we've now seen. Uh, I think that was one of the bigger questions. Um, I saw you making notes, so you can just go off of what you made of notes. Um, sure. It does not have to be every question. Um, the, the intent of the overlay zones has not changed, and the intent of how it's being applied has not changed. Um, as was indicated by the presentation and in our former meetings, um, this came out of a direct result of our housing element. So the housing element is, is uh, part of the process identifying sites within the city that can accommodate our um, housing allocation numbers. And so to meet those housing allocation numbers, uh, certain sites were identified in the city and uh, additional sites were needed and so um, give me a moment to flip back through to land on the slide of the sites uh, th through that process, there were several sites on the Johnson Corridor, as shown on the screen, as well as on the Telegraph Road, that were identified for sites to be rezoned. The Johnson Drive sites do not allow residential uses right now, and the Telegraph Road uh, Church site is an R1, so it's a single-family residential site. Those were identified to increase in density, as shown here on the screen, um, that would require them to be rezoned to allow residential 
uses and to have an overlay to apply design standards to them. What is being brought to you tonight is that overlay, so those form-based code overlays to apply design standards. If we were just to rezone them to residential, our current residential zones in our municipal code have very little standards. Basically parking, setback, density, um, some don't even have density, and parking. Uh, they don't have any objective design standards that could be used if those sites were rezoned. They are not in specific plan areas that have a form-based code, and so the thought was if we are going to rezone these to allow residential, we don't want to do that without having some objective design standards to associate with those sites so that when they are developed, there are standards to develop them based off of. That is where the premise of the overlay zones was developed to be able to create those design standards. We used our existing specific plans that are form-based code and built off of those standards that the community and uh, uh, developers and architects were used to using to then develop those overlay zones. So when this goes through the Planning Commission and City Council adoption process, what will happen for these sites is they will have one action of being rezoned to allow residential and the overlay placed at the same time. There's not these separate actions that will happen. They will get a zoning designation that will be uh, allow residential uses and list all the uses allowed, as well as an overlay that will add all of the design standards on top of it. So um, that's the premise. Doing it this way also allows if the council at any time would like to, to apply these to other residential sites or other sites in the city, they can apply the overlay independent of, of changing the zoning district or with changing the zoning district, either or. So this was the most flexible way in creating this as well as getting the assurance of design standards when these are rezoned. Uh, the city is required to rezone them because they are identified housing element sites and we are required to rezone them within a certain period of time. That's the general premise. Thank you. Can I ask one more? Sure. Uh, first speaker, Mr. Pettit brought up the, the reality that, that the state overrules us with exceptions. How did you guys address that in, the, in your process? Yeah, or are you? Can you? Yeah, that, that's the, really the right question. Can we actually you know, the state density bonus law is intended to encourage affordable housing and provides developers with incentives and waivers to be able to get there. They can either request for a request concessions if there's something that makes it incentives or concessions if there's something that financially prevents the project from being feasible. Uh, and they, that's what's tied to the number related to the affordability level. And then waivers are if there is a specific development standard that makes the project physically in, infeasible, so whether it's a setback or a parking ratio or height, uh, for example. And those are unlimited, and the state continually increases what it allows. Um, right now, you can even add more, get, take advantage of those incentives and waivers with, without adding new units by taking, not taking the percentage of affordability or you know, the percentage increase offered. Um, the state says we can't be disingenuous in terms of making our 
development and design standards so low that some a developer has to actually use their incentives or waivers to make the project feasible. Our, what we propose have to be allowed, our standards all work as a package, the design and the development standards need to allow the densities that are, the maximum densities that are zoned on a particular site. So unfortunately we understand that yes, a developer may come in and ask for a waiver or incentive, um, but there's not that much we can do about that. So you really just took it as if they didn't exist and you'll, we have, don't have a lot of choice of what we can do with that. Okay. And so one more question on that, and, and um, I can't remember the, the numbers or the name of the bill, but it's the parking, the, the no minimum parking if you're within a certain distance. That's of, right. Uh, mm -hmm. was, that, was that addressed at all in the um, overlays? So let me jump so are you talking about the no parking requirement when it's next to a major transit? If you're next to a major, within a certain distance of major transit, you have no minimum, no minimum parking. Right, or, there's... Or, is that right? No minimum. Yeah. Right, no minimum. You don't have to do any parking. And there are two locations in the city that would qualify for what the state is, is identifying, and that's our two train stops. So um, within a radius around the Amtrak stop in downtown and then the Metrolink stop where that doesn't apply. Where that only, law only, applies. Only two apply? Yes. Because really? the city doesn't have um, what's called high quality transit. Um, okay, so so being a bus stop doesn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily count it for it. It has to have a certain headway. Frequency. Um, frequency of the, uh, of the transit line. Is that questionable? We contacted HCD and talked to them about this. I'm sorry? We contacted HCD, the Housing Community Development Department of the state, and talked to them about this specific bill. Okay. So right so now- I, I, I was at a presentation where it was a little, was a little bit different, but it, I mean, it, I, I trust you. Yeah. Okay, thanks. But I do want to clarify, for the state density bonus law, there are parking standards within that, that okay. when you do um, apply uh, a certain percentage of affordable units, you get to use their parking ratios. And those are maximums that have been established, not minimums, but maximums. Okay. Yeah, I have a question about the overlay. So as, as I understand it, um, again, so we're rezoning these areas as identified, and that's why we're coming up with this form-based code overlay. And then you mentioned it can be, you can use this overlay for other sites. Um, what other sites would that necessarily be, or what would those sites look like, or are, is there any... Has there other, any other sites here on this map right now that might qualify for that? And again, what are those criteria? Um, I'm, I'm a little muddy. I'm sorry, I'm a landscape architect. Usually this stuff's already yeah, figured out by the time I come on board, but. Yeah, so, so the, there are four overlays being established, right? So, the, so the you'll only have one apply to any of these particular, um, any particular site. So on the map, um, you see the Johnson Corridor sites and then the site on Telegraph Road. Um, there's a site on um, near the Metrolink station, across from the Metrolink station, that has also been identified as a potential uh, housing element site where the higher density, the highest density, the five or six story overlay might apply to. Besides that, 
we haven't done any analysis as to where else in the city these overlays might apply because that's not the purpose at this point. Uh, if in the future um, there's a site which is, you know, the city may choose, and Neta, maybe you can talk to this better, that if the city council feels there's a site where housing is appropriate um, and there are no design standards or no form-based code associated with it, they can apply that overlay to those sites. And as the general plan is being completed and once the general plan is in place and adopted, um, this may be a tool that may be uh, used to um, relate to some of the land use designations that are being proposed in the, in the general plan. So committee member Kiesel, an example, and it's too late to do it for this site now, but would be the Maple Courts project on Maple Court, where they're coming and proposing a six-story uh, residential project. That site does not, it allows residential, it's a commercial zone, but it doesn't have any design standards. So this would that would be a type of site where if the council chose to put this overlay on that if a residential project or commercial project came in there, there would be some design standards associated with it where there is not now. There are uh, many sites in the city right now uh, that are outside of form-based code areas or specific plan areas that allow for residential or mixed use that don't have any design standards. Um, those would be the type of candidates to, to apply these regulations to. So, so I guess if you're a developer and you're looking to maybe see what sites you could apply one of these form-based codes, um, you can. Is there a map you can kind of go to, or, or like I, I guess you guys are identifying those before a prospective developer might Correct. come in. Um, Correct. We would. You can't just go, hey, like, uh, can we apply this base code to this property I just bought? Yeah. How development projects work is that a city cannot impose new regulations on a project. Um, once an application has been deemed complete. So if a project, if a property ha does not have an active application, or if they have an application that has not been deemed complete yet, a city can apply new regulations to it. Once it has been deemed complete, um, or they have applied for an SB 330, and I'm getting very into state law, or if they've applied for an SB 330 application that's vetted, vested them, you can apply regulations. Well, up until that point, you can't. So if the council did, after uh, this process of developing the overlay, say, city staff, take a look at the city and see what sites we could apply this to that don't have design standards. We would look across the city and look at areas that allow residential or mixed use that don't have design standards and look at those as qualifying candidates to apply this overlay to. So Does that help? If I can give another example to that, right now there are many commercial uh, centers across the city which have a C1A zoning which allow residential up to six stories, but there are no standards associated with those. So after these are adopted, the council may choose to, I'm not suggesting they do, but they may choose to come in and say we are going to apply the five to six story overlay on those sites, so at least if a project comes in, the city has some say in what gets designed. Because today, if a project comes in, there's no, um, there's no design standard to regulate what gets built. Okay, yeah, I got it, thank you, uh, appreciate the uh, 
the answer is no. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like everything is subject to a waiver. Um, the state says with state density bonus law, if, there is, if a developer identifies a design standard that restricts their ability to build the project, then yes, they can apply a waiver to it. So if we uh, request a 15-foot sidewalk, that could be waived to a 5-foot sidewalk under that hypothetical that you just gave me. Uh, yeah. It could. A setback could be a um, uh, step back on an upper floor could be, it just, it depends on, um, it just depends. If it prevents you from getting to the maximum density allowed, then you can use a waiver. But if you can, I mean, this becomes tricky, right? How do you demonstrate without redesigning the project for them to say, no, you can make it work this way. But those are discussions you have with, um, with the individual developers. The and the time. onus is on the city to, to identify that it is not needed. Okay, I mean, this is very challenging to us as a DRC and probably even more challenging to a city uh, to actually develop these standards that pretty much could be waived under quite a few circumstances. Um, my concerns are maybe the details, not the big picture, but the details. Um, if we're talking about a rooftop, the point was made, can a, if there, is a rooftop considered a floor? If you have... If you have amenities on it, it is not. It's not a floor, okay. It's interesting, because it, <laughs> in reality, it is a floor. It just, there's no roof. <laughs> yeah, it's... So, uh, you know, is that something that we could... It's a floor without a ceiling, could, so it's not a floor. Yeah, I mean, is that something that we... <laughs> yeah. Can that be an objective standard for us to say that a rooftop is a floor? Um, I suppose I... You would be... It may get... Yeah, you would I'd be changing the definition of a store in a floor that is typically standardly used. So it would be, you technically could, but we would re have to redefine a floor in a story. In your zoning code. In yeah, our zoning and code and as it applies across, across, across the, city. the city. Okay, well, I guess some, yeah. most of my concerns are just kind of small details. All, one would be native uh, materials. Uh, you didn't mention maybe the use of native materials. If we're gonna have stone, we should have stone coming from Ventura or Santa Barbara County's not from Vermont. Uh, so in terms of materials, um, I think we should encourage the, the use of native materials where possible. Uh, I think that's pretty objective. Um, Do you mean locally sourced? Locally sourced, yeah. If we're going to have stone... How are we going to have sticks? <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah, I mean, there's we, certain we, we do not source in Ventura or yeah. even, not even mostly even very little in California do we source sticks. Yeah. Lumber, well, Lumber yeah. is sourced yeah. mostly out of state. I mean, some in state, but right. I think yeah. that that's, that, that becomes very, very touchy. Okay, so that gets kind of difficult. I mean, metals, like metals, I so we can't oh, get yeah, metals from Pennsylvania? Well, metals. So if we have corrugated roof that's yeah. manufactured in Minnesota, um, or outside of Ventura, Santa Barbara. 
Chair Adelman, is the desire here for um, local productivity or for to, to make sure we're providing businesses, local businesses product, or is it to fit the character of the area? I think to fit the character of the area, it's often, you talked about authentic materials. Uh, and to me, native materials like stone would be authentic. Yeah, definitely um, native stones, like the sandstone, like what it has a regional context, material that's coming from local quarries or as close as we can get. I think that's what you're saying. I, I appreciate your intent, but I, I don't know that other than some stones that we can that we could really apply that. I don't see I don't see how the DRC could have could yeah, it makes it find that. Yeah. Just hey, your stucco has to be Yeah, in in addition locally sourced. Yeah, in addition we it has to be a standard. So we either require it or we don't. Okay. So if you require it, then every building that gets built has to use a very limited palette of materials. So and that may be problematic as well. Uh, we can have a guideline which, which encourages it, but the city can't enforce it. Okay, well, if you use the word authentic materials, would uh, manufactured stone be considered an authentic material? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think the intent with the authentic materials was that the materials should be authentic to that architectural style, whatever that is, is selected. So if the architectural style is craftsman, you should use materials that are authentic to the craftsman style or Mediterranean, you know, same, same thing. So if it's Mediterranean, you would use maybe a tile roof. Um, I think that was the intent there. Can we make El Dorado stone illegal, please? Is that possible? <laughs> I think the architects would agree with me on this one. A lot of Maybe not so much the developers, but um, I, I think what he's getting about authentic materials is important. Like that, that, like okay, if you have a stone, if you're going to use stone, maybe you can't source the quarry down the street just close. I mean, right now it's like we're chasing closing quarries around all around California and beyond. Sometimes you're looking for stone material that is cl the closest approximation to what are natural mm -hmm. stones are, mostly sandstone around here. There are There is other stuff. And so if you get like a, a lot of times we'll, we'll use Oklahoma flagstone from Oklahoma or, you know, Arizona or wherever, but it does look close to our native sandstone. So that's, so I, I think if you phrased it that way, not necessarily always locally sourced because it's not available. Because, well, you know, they give us a, a vernacular, you know, like you go around Europe, the, those, those places in Italy or wherever that are, they have that continuity, that genius loci. And again, a lot of that's because they're building from local materials. I, I realize that it's, it's not necessarily cost effective here in our current you know, world as it is, but um, whatever we could do to get close to that, I, I would applaud that or so support it. The, the architectural integrity, it said building form, details, colors, materials should be authentic to the style selected. Um, I feel like that gives us leeway to be able to say that you need to be using authentic, what is by this definition, if this is the definition, 
those materials. We don't have to use their standards because I don't want necessarily enslaved Native Americans having to build a Spanish-style house, but um, I think that this is not a bad uh, definition, if that's the definition. So how would you, I don't know the exact term. Building building forms, details, colors. So they're talking about the forms. Let's just take a Spanish-style building there. We've got... We've got heavy roofs on top of thicker, fatter walls. So that means that we can enforce that the, the window depths are even larger because it, that gives it the architectural integrity. Um, and the detail, the detailing would be, we, we could, it seems like we could enforce the, it's whatever that one is. Um, it's building type standards. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Um, it, it feels like it gives us, as the DRC, um, not the right, but the the ability to comment on on the stone, whether it's locally sourced or what, it, however it's sourced. I I feel like that actually does give it give it that. I was I was a little bit impressed by that even being included. So because how would you, you handle because you're not dealing with modernism, you're not dealing with postmodernism, you're not dealing with with That's neocolonialism. Right. You're talking about architectural integrity of if whatever they choose, because Ventura is an eclectic place. So if they're going to go with something that we can push them to stay within the realm of yep. that style, Absolutely. unless they can, you know, I don't. So we could easily say like the faux ledger stone is not authentic. I, I feel like we, I could. we could use that as I'd leverage. Be to, I'd be willing to, yeah, for sure. Okay, if we can say that, I'm down. Well, how about a drivet wall on a Spanish style oh, yeah. drivet wall? Well, <laughs> I don't even think they should be building Spanish style with 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 stick framing, but um, that's not architectural integrity. So I don't know how far you take it, but I think it become it can become an argument and discussion. For us, at least. Yeah, the key is for us to stay objective. Uh, you know, Aren't not we say I don't like that stone, but to say it's it's not working uh, in terms of its authenticity for yeah. this area. Yeah, even though we're a pretty subjective body. Um, and I'll, I'll just go, like I said, my questions are details, maybe the things you consider. Uh, I'm a proponent for green roofs. Uh, they not only look good when you're living on the hillside, but they also collect water. They mitigate the runoff. Uh, it, it keeps the city cooler. Uh, I'd like to see somehow uh, these standards encourage green roofs. Um, I think we all benefit from this. It, it winds up costing a little bit more, but in, in the long run, uh, I think the benefits outweigh the costs. Uh, the other thing I'd like to see incorporated would be solar. Uh, there should be some guidelines on solar on buildings. Uh, you're probably not aware of it, but there's some new products that are coming out where you can mount solar vertically on a balcony. So we could have a five-story building with several balconies with solar panels mounted ver vertically on the rails. Do we want that? Um, I don't know that we can, you can do a building without solar. Isn't that a state requirement that's now? A, that's that, what I thought. That's okay. correct. That's a CDC. Right, but you know, uh, the standard might be: is are, are we 
we going to screen our solar? Are they going to be visible? I mean, the solar should be incorporated into the design. I, it I, be. I agree 100%. I agree 100% with, with your intent, but I think that solar is, a, is one that is actually CBC required. Correct, but there should be, I mean, I think we should encourage it to be part of the design process, not tacked on. What I would encourage, and this is more to, to staff, is to actually have them present the building as it's going to be. Because what we're seeing is we're not seeing the solar, we're not seeing the downspouts, we're not seeing that stuff, and we keep asking for them, and we're not seeing that. So they have to have it. I mean, some people bring us a project, they don't even realize that they need solar, but when they go to the through building and safety, they're going to have to have solar. And then that's going to be a tack on. So I think what you're saying is that it's have it within the design yes. intent, and I agree 100%. Yeah, let's see it. Uh, one of the questions dealt with attic space. Uh, is, is that a reality uh, or a concern that we need to address? If, if I could just talk about the solar real quick. So under the services and utilities in the general site design standards, we ask for screening. We can make sure it's clear about the solar as well, um, since that is an addition to most buildings. Um, as far as the attic space, that's how our current code is written and allows. There's a lot of um, buildings and residences in the Pierpont area that do have say like a mansard roof or some, something different where they do have an attic space and that is not counted as a story. So that the attic space not being counted as a story is how our current code is written. <coughs> Sorry. Related to that, your, your well, the low, the, let's say, just take one of them, the three-story, uh, MU3. So if someone has a three-story, they're limited to you guys in the current um, form-based code, they, they have floor to floor and then floor to floor as they go up. And so if someone happens to have an attic in that and, the, and then it's workable, but it's within the realm of, of your form, does it matter? That's right. And, and I think it might, but I'm just, that's just kind of a question. I think that that, that was the question, could I, could I have a three-story attic, I think she might have said, uh, something like that. But, well, there's uh, a maximum height that is stories and feet. So it's three stories at 40 feet. And so if in that three stories and 40 feet, they have maybe a taller attic space that they want to use, they're still limited at that 40-foot height. They're limited to that, but it could be that John Malkovich uh, space up there where it's a half story and you're, and you're, I mean, you can use it because you can use, if they have a certain slope, they could, mm -hmm. they could use it. Yes, they and, can. And there's, is there anything that says anything about that? It says your... they could use up to 75% of that space. Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, and it can't be, um, cannot exceed 75% of the ground floor footprint. Mm -hmm. So, depending on the... The so attic. It yeah. probably wouldn't get to that. Right, because you're going to yeah. get... Yeah. Yeah. You'll get narrower yeah. as and, you go Yeah. So that's why we have Mansard Bruce in Paris, right? <laughs> Free space. And we have some in Pierpont. Okay. Uh, ADUs, uh, rooftop ADUs, that's the first time I've heard anybody address that. Uh, should there be a setback for ADUs on a rooftop? ADUs are covered separately in the city's ADU ordinance, so that's why we don't have anything on ADUs you know, in these Form-based overlay. So again, if there were ADUs developed on one of these sites that has a form-based overlay, 
if they wanted to do an ADU, it would follow the city's current ADU ordinance. So you would first follow the overlay, and then you'd say, okay, I want to put an ADU. And if it falls within that, I can then do it. Okay. Yeah, ADUs are very specific in it's what It's very they specific, are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I thought the idea of having the buffers between residential and new development, that's, that's a good idea. I think uh, most of the time when people come and speak to us on these new buildings, they're concerned about having a three or four or five-story building uh, up against the residential. Are you talking about the step-downs? The step-down and Yeah, step-downs and buffers. Yeah, step -downs yeah. And buffers. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I agree with that. Yeah. The neighborhood transitions. Yeah, a, transi exactly. a transition buffer, yeah. a step-down transition, yeah. Um, I think I mentioned native plants. I think you would support that on oh, oh, yeah, it's definitely as a preference for native plant material, you know, if at all possible. Availability can be an issue. Native plants aren't always the answer, but most they, they should be your first choice, I would say. And uh, recessed windows, you mentioned that. I, I think that looks a lot better than putting frames around windows, and I think we should stick with that standard of recessing the windows. Okay. Now, I'm not sure if somebody is going to come in with a bay window and ask for a waiver <laughs> to get that additional space. So, but the, but the window can still be recessed in the bay, right? It's true. Yeah. Yeah, very yeah. true. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that concludes my nitpicking. Uh, I, I have a question, and, and I think I feel like you might have addressed it. So sorry if I'm being redundant, but the the LM on on the left side, mm -hmm. why why do you not have a, a story on that one and you have story on all the others? So so what is the if I came in and just said oh I want to do a low low moderate density, do I go in and look at, at your heights? Do you have heights within that so I can do one story really tall one story, or I could do a three story, you know, much shorter, or is there some type of story involved in that? In there's that a, designation, there's a 28 foot height limit mm -hmm. for the LM. Yeah, and two and a half stories. Okay. Half oh, and it is two and a half stories. Oh, okay. I, it's just not on here. It's not on. Okay. Okay. Not, yeah, thank it's you. not on the slide. Sorry. Yeah, thank you. That, yes. I figured you probably did. Yeah. So it's basically the same as the current, you know, house form, form, typical, typical height and stories. There was a question about percentages on the mixed use. Is that something that will be incorporated in the standard? Um, so, so the housing for the housing element sites um, for those sites to count as uh, housing element sites, the city cannot require a commercial component. Um, you you can allow it, but you can't require it, and. Frankly, that's also something that developers often use one of their waivers or, um, or incentives to, concessions to get, move away from. To eliminate that. Maybe that's good for us to have. May I <laughs> ask a really, it really one less uh, Yeah, it sorry. just uh, gets them to use one more of their uh, waivers. <laughs> I, I have a really general question. Why do you? Why do we use density in a form-based code? The state is requiring because the state the requires it. Okay. To have a number, in fact, or even yeah. you have to have FARs if it's. I just want to make sure that was actually the answer because I know the state does require that, but form-based code, once upon a time, by definition, 
doesn't yes. doesn't really talk about density. I can come in with 35 SROs and, or you know mm -hmm. smaller units yeah. and and fit them in where the, that changes the density. So it it is a proponent to certain size units mm -hmm. or maybe a mixture of units, but but by yeah. definition, my understanding was always that we have form. Based and code. the downtown specific plan is created that way. It doesn't have a density associated with it. With all the state laws, it's been extremely complicated in doing state density bonus and um, adhering to the laws or trying to limit maybe the amount of density when there is none associated with it. So um, even with this general plan update in our downtown areas and our other form-based codes, we will attach a density to those land uses. Yeah, I, I think it's caused confusion. Sometimes I think the confusion is good. Um, some Most of the time it's not, especially when it comes to state issues of density bonuses and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. I think I'm just going to, as a general comment, I really appreciate you guys' work and what you've done and, and, and how you've handled it. You handled most of the things that, a lot of times that we have to deal with. So we have to deal with, like, like the chair said, step downs and things mm -hmm. like that. And, and, and authentic, 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 I can't, I'm not going to be able to say the word, but that to me really read like, hey, now we can say that's not authentic to Spanish style. Why? Why is that? Why do you think that's authentic to ask the question of the Absolutely. developer the, or the builder or the designer that why is that authentic? And now at least it gives us a question and, and it puts it in writing if that actually doesn't end up in the code that it that we can ask those questions. So most of the most of what's in here for me is really appreciated. I, I agree. William, uh, it's a lot of hard work that's gone into this. And uh, I'm just kind of curious, this is not your first rodeo. You've probably done this for other communities. Is this pretty consistent with what you've done or are we pushing the envelope in any area? Um, I don't know, Alessandra. I don't think we are pushing the envelope in making, you know, the goal is whichever community we work in is to provide regulations that actually work for the community. And different communities have different issues that they are really near and dear to their heart. Um, and so we focus on, because we are required to get, provide objective standards, we don't want to be so prescriptive that there's no flexibility left. And as we all know, to design a building on any particular site, there are things that come up. And if you have to keep asking for waivers or concessions, then it's, it just takes that much longer for that building to be completed. So we focused on the issues that are really important, what it takes to create a building that, you know, the, which are at a human scale. So when you're walking down the street and you walk past a building, it feels appropriate to its setting. And um, that's what our intent was here. And, um, it would be interesting to see what the yeah. I, I would add to that if you're on a hillside and you're looking down at the building, because we all, all think in terms of, oh, what's, what's the elevations look like? But there's people who live on a hillside looking that's down, true. and that's another view that we need to be concerned about. That's true, and frankly, yeah. and this is my personal opinion, looking down at a roof deck with some seating is probably nicer than looking down at just building equipment. Building. HVAC equipment. <laughs> yeah. I, have, okay. I have actually two more quick comments. I think that you, 
somehow should address whether the a rooftop is a story. I don't think it is myself, um, and I do prefer to have it. So I think there should be some flexibility within that. And I think now, they, like even a trellis is whether how much it's covered, certain percentages, and things like that. But I think that that is something that would be kind of nice to be addressed in there. In this. so we, so there's something for staff and and the rest of us to be able to to. Um, comment on and the other was the other that I forgot to ask about earlier was the parking so that's often an issue with the current form based code and you talked about it but are you prescriptive in that or do you do you, what how do you address that if we if I was to go to design a building I want to put the parking on the front of, on the street is there something that's saying that hey dude you can't do that yes there is. so whereas the the existing form based codes are very, very almost too much, almost too, too much, too right? Because so. yeah, I mean, they're, they're, like, you have yeah. to put the parking right here on the site. Right. right. Um, this says it has to be located to the rear or side of the building, and you know, which gives you more flexibility depending on the arrangement and your frontages. Um, and it just can't take up more. If it is on the side, it can't take up more than thirty percent of your street frontage. Can it be on the side of a corner? No. No. Okay. So if it, if it's an internal lot, you could have it to the side and towards the back. And as long as I've got something that the people get to walk against, again, other than cars, I, that that's there. Okay. That's yeah. that's great. The that's prescriptive great. fifty percent of the rear has gone away. Yeah, because that that's incredibly yeah. hard. Because I, I mean, we all like, like someone can't do the can't do parking because it's two feet too small. Right. Like, oh, come on. You know. So I appreciate that too. I just had what Only for these overlays, though, just as a I'm sorry? <laughs> Only for these overlays, that restriction yes. has gone away. It still applies. Yes, I understand. I understand we're talking about the overlays. Yeah. Not that hopefully that we can revise the rest of it as well, mm -hmm. but I know that's a big, that's daunting. <laughs> I, I just, real quick here, clarification on the uh, allowed encroachment, Section C. Um, you talk about. As a landscape architects, we live on the margins, the edges of whatever <laughs> open space is allowed to us. Yeah. We have clients come to us, I want a fireplace, I want a wall, a wall fountain, for example. And here you say, if you have like a wall feature or waterfall, I get it if it's some roaring, you know, large water feature that's gushing out water, which is hard to imagine these days. Um, right up against a shared CMU wall, for example, that, that could be problematic. But is there an exception? Like, let's say you're doing a very quiet weeping wall. Would that be an exception to, to this? And then also, that's for the wall fountains on, on let's say, it's a shared CMU wall. And, but, but I'm going to, 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 if I'm looking at this, you have to be three foot setback inside of that. You'd have to build a separate wall, let's say, mm. right? Um, or if it, there was a, on the building face, you could have it on the building face. You could have it on the building face, right. I get that, but you can't. And then on like your fire feature, you say if, if the fire feature, uh, if, like say it's a wall, a, a, a wall fire feature, um, if it, it could go to eight feet, is that the limit to it? Or I don't understand exactly how to read that. Says outdoor fireplace is not wider than eight feet measured in the general direction of the wall which it is a part. So, if there's a wall and you have a 
fireplace on in the middle of that wall, the width of that fireplace can't be more than eight feet. Yeah, no more than eight. Yeah. Okay, that's how I was trying. So, but as far as the projection is concerned, uh, it, you cannot have this. On, it cannot project into the front or the street side setback. Uh, it can. Uh, uh, project up to five okay, feet yeah. into your uh, interior side or rear setback. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I understand. I, I think that's fair enough and everything. But I, I guess with the wall feature, or like if you have some little simple, and, and again, some of these spaces are so tight that you can't necessarily always have, a, excuse me, a a wall fountain, let's say, or fire feature with the actual architectural wall. Um, sometimes the only place you can put these things and still have a living, outdoor living space is on a shared wall. So I, I guess, I don't know if you could look at that and see if there's some other exceptions or some flexibility if it's super quiet or if it's of a, if it's weeping only versus, yeah. Yeah, th this is really like a standalone fireplace. You're talking about one that's integrated into the building or some other type of site wall in the project. Site no, no, like I, I've done wall firewalls before, right? And you have to be like here. You have to be three feet in from the property line or five or whatever it is. Sometimes the co that's a fire code tells you yes, that, right? Right? Is this yeah. is this based on the fire code? Uh, uh, um. It's not based directly on the fire code, but it is it contradicting it, perhaps, it, or is it consistent? It, it is consistent. Okay, but my, my only thing, the one little, <laughs> I don't to beat this down, but I, I, whatever, if we could have more flexibility in in that on the water features, I think that that would I, I would like to see that um, be a little more specific on what type of wall feature. Okay. Uh, excuse me water feature you can do there. Not that we do that many water features nowadays, but maybe now more because we got rain now. <laughs> maybe we're a rainy place. Maybe. We can't decide California. This year. <laughs> You're right. Um, so anyway, that was my just detailed comment. Um, and I have a question for our community development director. None of these standards uh, apply to, say, a school district or the college district, if they want to build something, build a housing or a dormitory or a type of structure, uh, city standards or the f uh, fairgrounds, these don't apply to them, do they? No, they don't. Those go like the college would go through the state architect and, and go through their regulations, so they don't come through the city offices. They play by their own rules. They play by their own rules. If, if, I, if I may, um, we'd love for you to look this over more um, in the next couple of weeks if you so choose to. The main kind of changes we made from the form-based code overlay or form-based codes we have now, we reduced the amount of building types, reduced the amount of frontage types to really pick the ones that we most frequently use. The things that we added were the neighborhood transitions predominantly. We modified some of the open space requirements based on feedback as well as the parking placement. And then we added the whole street tree section and sidewalk sections. If, if you do want to focus on kind of a specific area, those would be the ones that we would love the most feedback on. Um, 
since they are newer kind of introductions into this overlay, uh, since there's been a lot of interest on it. And you're welcome to email us, uh, email me any further comments or markups or anything that you have. Uh, again, we're going to take public comment on this for uh, another couple weeks till April 9th, and then we're going to make revisions and package this up for Planning Commission. Okay. And then if no further questions, I'm going to... I do have a question. Okay. Um, what, do you, what do you... Will you do something similar to this if CPAC um, comes back with and they request some type of zoning change for an area or something like that? Will that go through an overlay process? Through the general plan advisory? Yeah, so, yeah, so if, the, if the general plan advisory committee comes back with something and the city says, okay, yeah, we should adopt that, will it go through a process something like this? So if the general plan advisory committee, as, as we do land use alternatives and we adopt the, the new land use map, that would be an opportunity, as Simran mentioned, that if those sites, certain sites get rezoned, yeah. that we could apply this overlay to. So you, so you would be able to apply this overlay to that? Yes. Okay. The cool. the whole goal was to be flexible enough to do. Right. So it doesn't have to be. We don't have to redo it again. Have right. another wheel involved. We can use this overlay. Correct. Awesome. Thanks. That's it for me. Okay. And uh, I'm going to conclude our discussion. And uh, the staff have anything uh, that they want to share with us before I adjourn. No, thank you so much for accommodating this special meeting. Our, our regularly scheduled meeting of April will be the next time that we meet. And you guys know that I won't you be able will to make not that be one. there. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Thank you all. Meeting is adjourned.